Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of Lifehouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. Today, we are continuing our Christianese series, and uh, today we're going to be checking out the word disciple, but before we actually do that, could you actually stand up with me one more time? We're going to do something that, that, that we've done a couple weeks past, and we're just going to continue it today where we are just going to pray for God to open our hearts to receive God's word today, um, because here is what I know. A, a, a lot of you are stressed, and apparently... Jesus wants to speak to us today, so that's, that's our, the Holy Spirit just showed up through the reverberation in the subs, okay? Uh, just lost my train of thought. What's, what's going on? No, okay, we're going to pray. What this is, though, is, is basically a simple prayer that says, God, we invite you to speak to us through your word, because this is what I know. Many of you are stressed out, worried, anxious. You have a, a lot going on. And it can be easy whenever you're sitting here listening to God's word. You're just thinking about everything that you have going on, and you can easily miss what God wants to say to you, okay? And what this prayer is is simply asking God, I'm available here and speak to me. If, if we could, take our hands and just kind of put them like this here, just like you're about to receive a hug or something like that. And uh, just, and just kind of go like this here, just as kind of... God, we're in reception mode, all right? And, and what we're going to do, I'm going to start this prayer, and, and if you would join in with me, okay? Spirit of God, prepare my heart to receive God's word today. I lay down my current fears, frustrations, burdens, worries, and anxious thoughts. Give me ears to hear, a heart that is receptive a spirit that is hungry for revelation, and an urgency to obey and put into practice what I hear today. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can give a couple people a high five, excuse me, and have your seat. So we're checking out the word today, disciple. And that word we don't use in our context very much, but it is used in Scripture a lot. Matter of fact, Jesus tells us that we are called to be disciples of him, but we don't say that word a whole lot. We're not going around telling people, be my disciple or be disciples. It's, it's kind of, of like our, our context or framework for saying that word disciple is probably more of student, teacher. So you've got someone that is kind of your teacher and then somebody that is your student knowing what, what they no, it's the transfer of information, right? But so we don't use that word disciple very, very much. However, I do want to kind of give you a framework possibly that our culture has that you could possibly understand what, how, how this word works. And the best way to, or the best way that I thought that we could possibly do that is by using football, right? Got any football fans here? All right. So back in the, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, there was a coach named Bill Parcells. Uh, he coached the Giants in the 80s. Um, he coached the Patriots in the 90s, and then he became the Cowboys coach in the 2000s, and which went through a string of many, 
not good seasons, partially because they had jacked up, messed up quarterbacks. They had an old beat up, washed up Drew Bledsoe. They had Drew Henson. They had Quincy, uh, John Quincy Adams or whatever his name was. Uh, Quincy Williams, uh, you know, and then they had uh, chat. I mean, just if you're a Cowboy fan, you know, they went through a long spell of this garbage quarter- quarterbacks. Bill Parcells, though, um, he is actually one of the greatest coaches in NFL history. And what I wanted to do really quick is actually show you, this is called a coaching tree where it's basically saying these, you know, from Bill Parcells, these other coaches became head coaches in the NFL. So we can actually throw that up there. You can actually see Bill Parcells. We're turning the lights off again, huh? Okay. Bill Parcells um, actually on his staff, and he actually trained up Bill Belichick. Maybe you've heard of him, right? He's won a few Super Bowls. For all you Patriots fans, we hate you. I'm just kidding. We're not supposed to hate. We're Christians. Um, but I hate Tom Brady. No, that's it. I'm just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. Um, Jesus, help me. Now, but, but, but it's like Bill Parcells trained, trained up Belichick. He also trained up Nick, or, or the thing is, is right, from Belichick, Romeo Cornell, Nick Saban, um, Josh McDaniels, Jim Schwartz, Parcells. He also raised up Sean Payton, who won the Super Bowl with the Saints. Bill Parcells also uh, trained up uh, Tony Sperano, Todd Haley, also Tom Coughlin, coach of the Giants, won a couple Super Bowls. All of these people were on the staff of Bill Parcells. And you can see from Bill Parcells, these guys, they're actually called Bill Parcells' disciples. Well, where Bill Parcells influenced them and shaped and formed and molded them as coaches, and they took what they learned from Bill Parcells and went on to coach different teams and win many Super Bowls. But that is what, dis- that is what discipleship is. It is where you form your life and shape your life in the image of somebody or something. Now, to really get a grasp though, of, the, of what this word disciple means, we need to see it back in the first century context in Jesus's day. So stick with me. Is everyone with me? All right. So look, in Jewish culture and life where Jesus lived, kids started to go to school that was taught by a Jewish rabbi starting at six years old. So at six years old, they would go to school uh, and typically a Jewish rabbi, he would be teaching it. And from six years old to 10 years, years old, kids would actually learn how to read, write, and things, and things like that by memorizing, memorizing, I'm going to say memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, or Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> Promise I know the books of the Bible. I'm your pastor. Uh, the, the first five books, uh, they would learn that. And they would learn God's law, and, and they would learn God's word. But typically about 10, 10 years old, most of the kids would be like, okay, got schooling down. I don't want to teach this stuff. I just wanted to get a general idea of how to read, write, blah, blah, blah. So then at 10 years old, they would go into their family trade because typically every family, they had a specific trade, whether it was wine, olive oil, farming, or something like that. Well, there was, there was a very small group of of. of kids after that that would say, I want to go to essentially middle school and go to the next level where from 11 years old to 15 years old, they would actually memorize, I'm going to say it memorize, I'm not stuttering this time, I'm saying memorize the whole Old Testament. 
where they would devote themselves to learning, memorizing, wrestling with the whole Old Testament scripture. And they would, you know, they, they would learn, glean, grow, learn, learn how to actually interpret and wrestle with. And this Jewish rabbi, he would teach them and train them. And then whenever most kids hit 15 years old, most of them were like, okay, this has been awesome and great, but I don't think I have what it takes to go to that next level. I don't think I can take what I have learned here and actually teach others and train others. So most kids at 15 years old, they would then go and start their family trade. So they were late starters. But there was a few select group of people that felt like they had a calling then to go to the next level. And so what they would actually do, there was a very small percentage. So we're talking about the valedictorians, right? We're in, we're in graduation season. Those got the highest GPAs, the best of the best, you know, where they thought, do you know what? I want to go deeper. I would love to be a rabbi. And so if they wanted to become a teacher rabbi, they would go to whatever rabbi that they, you know, thought was greatest, best, and they would apply to be one of those rabbi's disciples. Okay, everyone following? They would apply, and, and, you know, and it was a very small percentage of people that actually got, that got, the, 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 that became other rabbi's disciples because, because they had to go through a grueling process. The, the, the rabbi would then grill them and, and ask them questions about the Torah and the Old Testament. They want to see, does this guy have what it takes to be one of my disciples? And here's the thing. If a rabbi thought, I think this kid's got what it takes. I think this kid could be my disciple. Rabbis would say to them, come and follow me. Some of y'all are like, oh, I've heard that before. Because haven't you always wondered whenever Jesus in the Bible, he would like go up to these random dudes and be like, come and follow me. I'm Jesus. You know, and then you would see these tax, the, the, these tax collectors and fishermen and these ordinary guys just, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. And just like robots, they would just follow him. We just think the Bible, like, why would these dudes just get up and randomly start to follow Jesus? Like, why would they do that? But now does it make a little more sense? Because check it out. Whenever Jesus went up to them and said, hey, John and James, follow me. Hey, Matthew, follow me. In their minds, this clicked. Hold on. I've known this. Um, but I'm not the valedictorian. I wasn't at the top of my class. I was that 10-year-old that dropped out. I was that 15-year-old that said, I don't got what it takes. But Jesus went to them and said, hey, dude, hey, James, hey, John, Matthew, and the other disciples' names. And they said, come and follow me. See, and we typically look at discipleship or stuff like that as just being what, you know, kind of a student teacher thing where the student knows what the teacher knows. But in that context, it wasn't just knowing what the other person knew. When you said, come and follow me, what, what, what Jesus was saying and what the other rabbis were actually saying is, I believe you won't just know what I know. I believe you will literally become like me. You will be like me. 
And so whenever Jesus went to, went to this JV team, went to these kids that dropped out, went to these kids that were not good enough, went to these kids that didn't have the best grades, went to these kids that, that were working in their family business, and Jesus said to them, hey, come and follow me. What Jesus was saying to him was, I just don't think you can know what, what I know. I think you can become like me. And they were like, hold up, is this the dude out healing people? Is this the dude preaching with power and authority? Is this the guy turning the world upside down? And he just asked me and told me, you can come and follow me? Hey, honey, I'll see you in three years. I'll leave my boat. I'll leave my ship. I'll leave my nets. I'll leave my tax collecting position. And I will go. If this guy says I can be like him, I will go and follow him and be his disciple. Now, this should comfort all of y'all. This should be such an encouragement to you knowing if you are a follower of Jesus, that is still the same call even now. Most of y'all weren't the 18. Most of y'all weren't the ones that graduated from theological school. Y'all weren't the ones that were atop of your spiritual etiquette, your spiritual ministry, whatever. Most of y'all are the worst of the worst. But Jesus has said, including me, Okay, I'm in that too because I know who I was before Christ. But Jesus said, I want you to come and follow me, but not just know what I know. I believe you can actually be like me. And Jesus calls you. Jesus calls us and says, draw near to me, follow me, be my disciple, and you will be like me. Do y'all see the power in this? The power in reframing what this word disciple means when you put it in this first century con con context, that it's not just about knowing what someone else knows or being a student of somebody. It is Jesus saying, I believe if you follow me, I believe you can be like me. And I mean, think about this reframes a lot of the Bible whenever you think about it. Like think about whenever Jesus asked Peter, come and walk on water. And P Peter had the guts to do it. He sees Jesus walking on water. What's in Peter's mind? He said, I could be like him. Yo, I'm going to get out this boat. Because if he's walking on water, I can walk on water. And he, you know, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and kind of falls. But in Peter's mind, it was, if he, if he can do it, I can do it. And church, we've got to see here that, that, that Jesus calls us to follow him. It's not just knowing what he knows, but it is full access to everything Jesus is. And church, I believe when we catch a heart and mindset for discipleship and we actually see what it is, it's powerful. Now, the thing is this, right? You, we, we've got to actually see, though, a couple things about this whole word discipleship, disciple, and all of that stuff, right? Where, where here, here's the truth, right? You've got to know that you are being discipled whether you know it or not. Where if discipleship is you are being shaped and formed in thought, motive, action after a thing or person, you have to see that you are being discipled intentionally or, un or, intentionally or unintentionally by somebody or something. Essentially saying, there is somebody or something that you are modeling, that you are following, and you are shaping and molding your life after. Essentially, you are all like Plato. To where there are forces in your life or people in your life that you are consciously and cognitively shaping your life after. 
intentionally, or some of y'all don't even know that you are being intentionally shaped and formed to be a certain kind of person. So you are either intentionally or unintentionally being shaped and formed after the image of somebody or something. And so what you've got to see is that whether you know it or not, you are being shaped and formed. And here's the scary part. If you are not intentionally being discipled and formed and shaped by Jesus, then you are either intentionally or unintentionally being shaped and formed by the culture. There's a world out there spending billions of dollars to make you into its image. People spending billions of dollars to shape and form you into the world's image. And unfortunately, what I see since, here's the thing, since discipleship happens, whether we want it to or not, and we're being shaped and formed, whether we actually know it or not, what I see is that the world, the culture, does a lot better job of discipling Christians than Christians do of discipling people in the world. I'll give you a few examples here. The world, the culture, does an incredible job of discipling informing people from peace to panic. I want you to get, get that, from peace to panic. Jesus promises us if you are his follower, you are to be people of, that, that are shielded by God's peace. Well, we are called to be people that are ruled by the peace of God. Not saying everything's going to be great, everything's going to be good, your life is just going to be daisies and just, you know, you lollipops skip and it's going to be great. It's like you're going to have trouble, Jesus said, but in the midst of your Life that is going to be chaotic and crazy, you will have a supernatural peace that surpasses all, all understanding. But it's so crazy to see so many Christians in our day ruled by panic and anxiety and worry and fear of the future. And as Christians, how should, why should we be known by that? It's because the culture's discipling us. It's saying, yeah, I know you're supposed to be people of peace under Jesus' reign, but now the world's going to disciple us to be as anxious and worrisome as everyone in the world. But also, too, the world, the, the culture is discipling us from love to hate. Where instead of being people that are known by our love. Jesus said that people will know who followers of Jesus are by our love. As a culture, we are being pushed towards being people of hate. That instead of focusing on what we do have in common, the culture is telling us, find that one thing you disagree with and focus on that and let it divide you. You're a Republican, you're a Democrat. Are you for Obama or Trump? Are you black or white? Are you this, that, and the other thing. Right? It's like find what, div what divides us and focus on that. And it's crazy how many church, church, church people focus on what divides us instead of what unites us. And here's the thing, right? We're called to be people of love, church. We're called to be people that are, that are called to be filled with God's love where people are going to know who we follow and who we're being formed into by how much we love. And get this, love our enemies, Love those who we disagree with. And it's not doing Jesus any favors whenever the people we disagree with or that we don't like, we treat them, this, we, we don't treat them with honor. 
Why? Because the world is discipling us and forming us and shaping us in its image instead of the church being formed and shaped in the image of Jesus. The church or the, the culture is discipling us from generosity to consumerism. Church people are, God's people, right? Christians, disciples are called to be the most generous people on the planet. One of the things that was actually said about the, the early church, get this, is, listen closely, they were sexually stingy and financially generous. Meaning they had sexual standards that said, I'm not sleeping with anybody and everybody. They had sexual standards. They were sexually stingy and financially generous. What does the world disciple us to do? Be sexually generous and financially greedy. It's your body, man. Just do what, just do what you want. Have fun. Experience. Just, it's your body. And then your stuff, keep it. And this is what our world is discipling us to be. And as people of God, we are called to be the most generous. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. But the culture is discipling us to be in its image. Finally, it's the culture is discipling us from community to individualism. Where instead of saying what, what, what we do is the betterment for us, we have a culture that is curating and training you to be all about you. Whatever feels good to you, do it. Whatever floats your boat, do it. And we've got to understand we are being shaped and molded. The culture is trying to disciple us and make us in its image. Can y'all feel this? Can y'all feel the weight of that? Can y'all feel the weight of how the world is trying to shape us and curate us and form us in its image? But this is where the church comes in. You know, Jesus chose the church, and Jesus said, look, I'm going to make the church as the disciple-making entity that is going to form people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That was the original intention of the church, not to make good church people, not to make people that can dress a certain way, that can speak a certain kind of Christianese. It was called to be in a God's way of shaping and forming people to be fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. But Here's the thing. Let me share with you a couple, uh, uh, a couple quotes that the that, that people have said about the church's purpose. C.S. Lewis said this. It is easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects. Education, building, missions, holding services, just as it's as it easy to think that the state has a lot of different objects. Military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists to simply promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. A husband and wife chatting over a fire. A couple friends having a game of darts in a pub. A, a, a man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is there for. And unless they are helping to increase and prolong and protect such moments, all the laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics, etc. are simply a waste of time. In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible are simply a waste of time. Neil Cole said this. He said, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, which I, I think we got a pretty good praise. We got a pretty good preacher, too, I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> 
praise preacher, we got some programs here, you know, say a property, and it's like, I'm like, I wouldn't mind having some property, we ain't got no property, uh, we rent property, but uh, it doesn't matter how all of those good, good, all of those things are, if your disciples, if your followers of Jesus are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is, is Jesus talking here. And my confidence monitor is not giving me any confidence. So I'm going to, says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make good church people of all the nations. No, make disciples, followers of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. I hope you see a common theme here, y'all, is that we are not called to just be good church people. We are called to be fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus Christ that are being shaped and molded into the image of the person that we model our lives after. And if you are not intentionally heading in that direction and intentionally aware of that trajectory, then you are are being unintentionally shaped and molded by the world and culture and whatever values you hold. This is a challenge for us, church. So on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your passion for being discipled by Jesus? It's, it's a challenging question. And here's the thing, I could tell you a lot about discipleship. Scripture tells a lot about Jesus, tells you a whole lot about what it means to follow Jesus, and I don't have time to talk about everything, so I've done the most preacher thing possible. I've got three things. It's always funny how preachers got three things, three points. I tried to have two, it didn't work. Tried to have four, it didn't work. I got three. This is how it is. And they all start with R, so it's all alliterated. Like, that's the most preacher thing you could do. I got three points, and they all start with R. But it was just how it worked, right? Um, so I want to give you three thoughts about discipleship or what I see, how Jesus summarizes discipleship and what it means to truly be a disciple and a follower of Jesus and to be shaped and formed into his image. First off, a disciple reckons. You might say, what does reckon mean? Reckons means to calculate or consider what something is going to cost. Because let's just be honest, right? We, many of us can have started off or at some times have followed Jesus, and we can get into this, man, I'm so, Jesus has forgiven me of sin. He's healed my marriage. He's healed some sort of emotional hurt in my life. And I'm just so excited about what Jesus is doing, and it's just awesome, and it's so new and fresh, and you're so passionate, and you just can't wait to go to church, and it's just awesome. You can't wait to read your Bible. You just can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. And honestly, this is how many of us start. And we, we can be thankful for what Jesus has done. But then we can also see that just as passionate as Jesus is about forgiving your sin, he's equally passionate about wanting to come into your life and transform you from the inside out to shape, to form you, to not just be thankful for having your sins forgiven, but he wants to come and now invade your life and make you more like him from the inside out. And there were so many people that followed Jesus in Scripture because of what he did for them. So think about John chapter 6, right? This is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. So Jesus feeds 5,000, and people are like, yo, this dude feeds people. Yo, I'm following him. I don't care where this guy goes. This is like mobile Ruth Chris. This is like mobile McDonald's. 
This is, this is like mobile Chipotle. I talk about Chipotle like every service. Mobile Chipotle. Like, if this dude's feeding people, I'm following him. Right? And you've, you've, you've got people that are passionate about following him. Well, then in, you know, later in John chapter 6, Jesus, he, he, he sits them all down and he starts teaching. And he starts saying some things that get some people a little confused and some people a little uncomfortable. And, and he starts saying stuff, look, um, I, uh, when you, like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, y'all, like, this dude a cannibal. Or this dude's talking about cannibalism. When really what he was saying was, is you had your physical need for food met, but now you need your deep-rooted spiritual need met by not eating physical food, but by feasting on me and my life and what I offer you. He was going deeper. He was saying, you don't just need a physical need met. You need a spiritual need in your heart met, and that's only going to be met when you feast on me. Well, not shocking. Some people in John 6.60 said this. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, uh, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? This is kind of weird. Kind of different. This is a hard teaching. And they're kind of like, uh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this whole thing. So then in 61, where that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Does this offend you? And I think all of us in our walks and in our process of following Christ, we come to this moment where Jesus offends us. Where Jesus offends us where something he requires pushes up against a certain thought or value that we hold. So when Jesus starts to get into our lives, he starts to point out things and say things that make us very uncomfortable and in many times even offend us. And when that happens, it's easy for us to get defensive. It's really easy for us to even question the experience that we had of him forgiving our sins. And we can think, well, is this thing even worth it? And really, unfortunately, what you see in, in John chapter 6, verses, verse 66, which I think is the most appropriately numbered verse, like John Antichrist, like John 666, uh, it says here, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Because of the offense that Jesus came, no longer was he just providing them food, but he was challenging their very thought process about what it meant to follow Jesus. And I'm telling you, y'all, Jesus wants to forgive you of your sin. Jesus wants to heal your emotional wounds and your emotional hurts, and he wants to do that work. But just as passionate as he is about doing that, he's passionate about shaping and molding you from the inside out to be and look and smell like Jesus. But there's going to be times where it's going to have an offense to it. Here's the thing. There's going to be times where Jesus is going to disagree with you. Tim Keller tells us this. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. Somebody was clapping. That, that's the whole new school thing for be like, yeah. <laughs> Tell them. <laughs> but it is so true, y'all. If Jesus never disagrees with you, if he is just a sugar daddy, if he is just someone that wants to make you happy, you are not following Jesus. You are following a Jesus picture in your mind of what you think Jesus is. 
And we've got to make sure that we aren't just expecting Jesus to always agree with us. I think there's four stages of each disciple. And really four stages of whether you're going to do anything in life. Whether you're going to get sexy and lose some weight. Whether you're getting, getting married or you're like trying to get a better diet. All right? These are four stages that work, like I said, in discipleship, diet, um, working out, marriage, whatever. Right? You've got the first stage and it's excitement. I'm doing keto. 10 grams of carbs a day, baby. Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to get sexy. My wife's going to like me again. And it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited about this process of keto. Yes. Or, man, I love my husband. He is just so amazing. I love how he's adventurous. And I'm more of a, you know, homebody. It's so great. He balances me out. This is how things start out, right? Like, I'm just so glad just how my husband is so loud in the morning. It's so cute. <laughs> just, you know, it just, you know, it's just all excitement at the, excitement at the beginning. And, and, and you know, or it's like, man, I'm just so excited about this new gym that I joined. Can't wait to go and take those classes. And you've, and, you, and, you've, and you've got this excitement. And, and you know what? Many of us show the same excitement when we start to follow Christ, right? I'm so excited about what Jesus has done in my life. He forgave me my sin. Now I feel so much better. I got more focus. I got more energy. I mean, I've, I've seen the world differently. Man, I'm so glad what God's doing, man. I can't wait to go to church. I can't wait to get in my Bible. I can't wait to get in a small group. I can't wait. Well, then you hit the second stage, which is disillusionment. Y'all be straight up with you. This keto's hell. <laughs> I'm, I'm like starting to see donuts, and they're like taking life safe form. These donuts are walking over and hugging me, and you know, it's like, eat me. Like, first it was Jesus saying that, now it's the donuts saying that. And I'm just all like, I'm seeing burritos like walk, walk over to me, and it is just crazy. And you're kind of disillusioned, like, woo! This keto was a great idea. Or now you're like, oh, this person I married. All they want to do is stay home. They never want to do something fun. And what was cute is annoying now. What was so cute and differences are good and, you know, you know there's no oh, opposites attract. Now opposites are attacking. Opposites attract and then they attack. It's like they're not as cool as you thought they were. And now you're seeing how dirty they are and how they don't do their laundry and they don't clean up after themselves and... Now you're questioning if this is God's will for you. Like, I don't know, God. I got to live with this for how long? Are you sure, God? Or, yeah, I, uh, this, this gym, they're like, you know, you know it's, it's January 8th. I'm going to take a few days off. I don't know about this whole getting up at 5 a.m. thing and getting to the gym before work. We hit the dis illusionment stage, and we do this in our walk with Christ, where we're like, oh, Jesus, I appreciate the forgiveness of sins, but you, you care about what I do in my sex life? Oh, you care about how I spend my money? Oh, you care about cussing people out? Oh, like you care about my thought life? Like you, you, you care about how I treat people that, that I don't like? You care about all, are, are you sure? Is that in the Bible? 
We hit the disillusionment stage because something that, that Jesus requires hits up against what we think is right and what we've always done and patterns we've established. And then we can get disillusioned and think, well, is this really worth it? Is following Jesus really worth it? Is this what, you know, is, is this, is it worth it? And then you hit the third stage, adjustment, where something's, something's going to give. And it's either going to be your commitment and you're just going to fall back into how you've always done things, right? And you see keto, yeah, you know, I'm on a different diet, homie. I'm on a seafood diet. I see it, I eat it. It is what it is. I've dropped this whole keto. This is how God made me. God made me this. He made me this way. This is who I, this is who I am, who I'm called to be. Or you know what, the whole gym thing, man, people were looking at me weird, and I just didn't like it, and this wasn't good, or, you know, it's just like, you just, you know, just, yeah, I just wasn't for me. Like, you know, I just decided to end it with my wife. I, 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 and my, I, I just decided, I, you know, I just, I want to be happy, and I just realized I'm not going to be happy with them. Just, I, just, I, I just gave up. You have an adjustment period where you've got to say, what is going to win? Will you obey even when you don't understand? Because we live in a culture that wants to understand and then obey. But a life of faith is obeying, and in that obeying, it leads to a, oh, that's why God said it. That's why God made this this. this, this process. That's why God did it. And so you have to adjust, and then it leads to growth. And here's the thing. When you see people that fight through where they're trying to get the whole diet thing right, and they fight through that, that period where, they are, where what, their, what, what their passion was hits what the actual expectation is, I'm going to get sexy. Can't eat a lot of carbs. I'm dying. I want to fall over. But they push through it, and they adjust and they get to the other side, and you see this glow on them. Like, look at me now. I'm beautiful. I look good. And I've seen people walk, walk through this process, I've, and I've seen people hustle it out at the gym and keep getting up and trying to establish patterns, and, but I've also seen people in their walks with Christ. When they hit this adjustment period, they fall off. And they say, this just isn't for me. This offended me. I'm going to back off. So, y'all, I tell you all of this because I want you to know the stages of what you're going to feel following Christ. And I, and I think this is a stage that we all hit at all times in, in different levels that we go with God. Like, I'm, I am in this stage where God is requiring things of me. And I'm like, God, I started a church. Isn't that good enough? Now you're wanting what from me? And I'm in this adjustment period of saying, am I going to surrender to God and obey even when I don't understand? Or am I going to obey? But I've seen God's faithfulness in the past where if I feel like I'm up against this wall and it's hard to obey and I don't understand, on the other side of that is blessing. On the other side of that, uh, of that obedience is an incredible season of harvest. And some of you here, you're in the adjustment period, and you have a, you're at a crossroads. 
and you're about to fall off, you're about to say, bump this and bump that. And what Jesus is telling you today is you need to obey when you don't understand. Because in that obedience, it leads to blessing because you always reap what you sow. Always reap what you sow. This is what Jesus said when we're talking about the cost of following Jesus. He said large crowds were, Jesus always had large crowds were traveling with him because he was, you know, he was kind of an intriguing figure. He said, in turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, I've preached on, on this before, but Jesus was using a hyperbole. He was trying to make an emphatic statement to get people's attention and get a point across. He wasn't saying, hate your mama, love your mama, okay? Love your mama well. <laughs> love your brothers, sisters. What he was saying, though, is as a follower of Christ, your ultimate devotion moves to him, and because you love him, you'll love your family well. But it says, such a person cannot be my disciple. But it says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war. Don't you think they will first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, will he send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask them for terms of peace? In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Do you see the call here? And some of you are like, John, this, this is way too difficult. Here's the thing, though. Discipleship is a process. Right, so, so something like, John, this is way too much. Hey, here's the thing, right? Jesus is patient with us. Think about, think about the disciples that followed him. You had Peter, who was a hothead. It was a process for all of the 12 disciples. I mean, Peter is, is, is like the hothead cussing people out. You know, the first one to open his mouth and insert foot. He was patient with him. In the same way, Jesus is patient with us, Right? He knows our weaknesses. He's been like us. He understands us. So this is a process. But first off, a disciple reckons and considers this is going to cost me something. Because we always want to, we always want Jesus to be made in our image instead of us saying, you know what, we need to submit to how Jesus tells us and what Jesus tells us. Not only does, does, does a disciple reckon, but secondly, a disciple rethinks. A disciple rethinks, right? Jesus came on, Matthew, Matthew 4, he came on scene. Jesus said, hey, um, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that word repent, many of us think it just means to feel sorry for, like our sins, right? Like I did something wrong, I need to feel sorry for. But this word in the Greek language actually had two, con had two connotations to it. It was yes, one is to feel sorry for what you did, but the second thing is to then rethink so that word means to feel re remorse, but it also means to rethink, meaning this, as a disciple, everything in your life is on the table and accessible to Jesus. Essentially, surrender your Play-Doh. God, I need you to help me rethink everything according to what you say. Every part of your life. Think, think about poker chips, each one of those poker chips. Whenever you go all, all in, it's you saying, God, I give you these, I put it all in, and I need you to now help me rethink what I have always thought about all of these areas of, 
of my life. And what you do is you put it in, and you say, God, I've been formed and shaped in many ways. The culture, like, I remember when I first got saved, and I was told, like, I can't have sex with anybody. Because I, I was. And I was like, really? This is new. And I was like, yeah, Jesus cared. Why? Because I was trying to find, I was trying to find love in all the wrong places. I was trying to find acceptance in all the wrong places. I was trying to find validation in all the wrong places. She said, no longer do you have to go and find validation out, out there. You can have a validation that goes beyond what you feel to the very king of kings. And so I had to surrender what I thought about certain practices that I was doing and say, Jesus, I need you to help me rethink these areas. I love Romans 12 too. It tells us this. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. We've got to surrender our Play-Doh and say, Jesus, I need you to help me rethink. Thomas Jefferson, right? Everyone knows Thomas Jefferson, like the third president, I think. Failed history. I think he's the third president. But Thomas Jefferson actually created the Thomas Jefferson Bible where he went through the Bible and took a razor blade and cut out the parts of the Bible that he did not like. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can actually go online and you can actually purchase it on Amazon. I would highly recommend you not. But many of you, but many of you are, are like, well, he's going to hell. He cut the Bible. And here's the thing, right? We can look at Thomas Jefferson and we can judge. At least he had the guts to cut out the parts that, that he didn't like. Where honestly, many of us cut out the parts, maybe not with a razor blade, but in our minds, and we pick and obey what part of God's word we want to follow and go. So we might not have a Thomas Jefferson Bible, but we could have a Dwayne Goodrich Bible. We could, we could have a John Allen Bible. We could have a, I don't know your name, so, uh, her Bible. What's your name? Caitlin what? Vance. We could have a Caitlin Vance Bible. We could, I think I've seen Andrew Lee over here. Is Andrew Lee over here? Andrea Lee Bible. No, she's not there? Okay. If, if you're on podcast, Andrea, hi. Um, oh, you are? I can't see nothing. I just see light. Right? But we can have our own Bibles and obey what we want to obey. But when you start to follow Christ, you rethink everything, and everything in your life goes to him. Keyboard player, you can come up to hold me accountable. So here's the thing. A disciple reckons what's this going to cost. A disciple rethinks. Everything's in on the table. And then thirdly, a disciple reorients their life around Jesus, his purpose, and his mission for our lives. I want to kind of write this out for you so you all can kind of see here. Just shift this over here. So many of us, right, the culture kind of tell, tells you um, you are the center of your life. This is, this is what our culture is shaping and forming us to think. It, it is discipling us to put us at the center. And then, you know, with, with our lives, you know, you kind of got our, our money, you know, our spouse or like love life, whatever you want to call it. 
Somebody said coffee earlier. You know, some of y'all are some passionate coffee drinkers here, right? You got your coffee or you got your hobbies, you know? You got your hobbies. And what, are, what are some other things that kind of we have in our life? Job, yes, job. How could I forget that? Kids. Oh, God. Kids. Yes, how could I forget my kids? Right? Um, and, and, well, okay, church. Yeah, church. Yeah, throw some church in there. I think that's about to fall over. I'm really scared. But does somebody want to, want to come over here and help me? Oh, there we go. Okay. All right, church. And, and then, you know what we kind of do, though? We kind of take Jesus, and he's just kind of just this, like, add-on, where Jesus is kind of like something we add to our lives, and if we can fit him in, we do it. If he fits our schedule, if he fits our, our, our priorities for that day, you know, he's kind of thrown in there with all of these things here where, you know, we got to spread our time out, and if we get to him, we get to him. But here's the thing. A disciple reorients their life instead of it being us in the center now Jesus is reoriented to the center of of your life and now Jesus dictates how you deal with how you manage how you serve how you deal with, reckon all of these other areas in your life. So Jesus is not now just a, a add-on. Jesus is now the center that filters every other area of your life. Your priorities change. So now instead of it being a you-centered life, you have a Jesus-centered life. Instead of it being you being glorified, you have a Jesus-glorifying life. Here's the thing, right? I think the key phrase is this, is is what I'm doing going to make me happy or give Jesus honor? And y'all, here's the thing, right? We live in a culture. Oh, we're going so late. It's all right. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. We, We live in a culture where you are being curated, shaped, and formed to, here's the thing, the American dream is life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. So this life is being curated for your happiness. And here's the thing, right? I think the American dream is actually Jesus's nightmare. Because if we have a life that is just centered on your happiness and your just you being happy then what ends up happening we can actually do what what we actually see happening now where we will take the dream of the united states and and combine it with the gospel and we can say now jesus jesus just exists for our happiness he wants to make you beautiful and give you health and wealth and he is here to glorify you when y'all that is not the American dream exists to make you happy where it's, it's, it's like Jesus's goal is for you to conform and be discipled and shaped into him. And what makes him happy makes you happy. So we've got to ask, in whose image are we being shaped in? What does happiness look like? Here's the thing. Jesus does not exist just for our 
happiness in the same way as a parent, I don't exist just for my kid's happiness. I've got Jackson here. Where you at, Jackson? Raise your hand. If I said to Jackson, Jackson, I just want you happy all the time. You know what, Jackson, he would probably tell me? You know what you'd want, Jackson? Skittles for breakfast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> He's like, yo. And Dr. Pepper for breakfast every day. If my life was totally, he's like, yo. If my, if my purpose was centered on him being happy, how much of a detriment would that be to him? And shaping him and forming him to be someone that is kind and is centered on, on, on not just himself, but, but other people. And in the same way, Jesus is telling us, it's not just about us. It's not just about us being happy. Jesus wants to shape and form us into the image of him, not just for our happiness. And many times those two things clash. C.S. Lewis said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. A bottle of port is the British way of saying beer. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And that's what I'm telling you, church. I want us all to be passionate followers of Jesus Christ, not just good church people. And that's one of the scariest things that I can, that I wish, that I hope never happens with this church. If we just have people that are like, I want to be good church people. I want to make Jesus in my image. My desire for us is to be fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus that say, Jesus, I will rethink everything. I will reorient my life around your priorities. I will do whatever it takes to follow you. We will center Jesus and not just have him as being some certain add-on, but we will say, Jesus, we give you all because you gave all. And in response to Jesus giving all, we'll give all to him. And we will be disciples, fully devoted followers of Jesus. But we've got to do these three things. A disciple what? What's the first R? Reckons. We consider the cost. Two, we rethink. Everything's in. And three, we reorient our life around the priorities of seeing Jesus glorified. Can we stand up, church? Thank you again for joining us on the Lifehouse Newport News podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchnn.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much, and God bless.